the Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Welcome to the Russick Outlook. Glad you could join us. Today's topic, Jesus, politics, and the church. Spiritual battles in high places. An American crossroad. Well, as I sit here recording this today, we're a little bit less than a month away from the next November 2020 election in the United States, uh, where we will be electing local, city, county, state officials, as well as federal positions, uh, Senate and the Congress, and uh, most predominantly on people's minds today is the next American president who will serve from 2021 through 2024. Uh, to say that things are heightened and tensions are on alert is a drastic understatement. Uh, never before in my lifetime have I ever seen anything like this. And coming from uh, a Christian background and being a Christian myself, a disciple of Jesus, uh, I, I am very curious as to uh, see why there is such a push for people not to be able to or to squash the voice, if you will, of people of faith. In other words, you know, they always tell you, and it's especially I'm going to say in the last 20 years or so, um, you can't mix politics and religion. It's taboo. It's forbidden. And that's not the history that I know of this country. That's not the foundation. That's not the staple. That's not the way in which Americans have been brought up. It's not what the history books reflect. So I wanted to take a look at, well, what is the push here? Because it's very clear and very evident that the politicians want the votes of the people in the church, but they don't want the influence of the church in the government. So this is really where I wanted to go. And in doing so, I figured, well, what better place than to look at the beginning of, of the foundation of this country and seeing where that this may have gone awry or where have maybe I've gotten it wrong. So Please join me on this little bit of an adventure, if you will, and a little bit of a history lesson at the same time. I promise you, you're going to find out things that you were not aware of, because in addition to looking at this, we're going to also look at the politics in Jesus' day. And yes, there was politics in Jesus' day. So I want to thank you again for joining. If you're listening on social media or, or watching, please hit the subscribe or like button. Love to have you on our email list. Or if you're listening, please subscribe to local podcasts. But let's dig into this now. So as I said, what better place than to look at the beginning and the foundation of this country? And you really don't have to look any further than the Mayflower and the pilgrims that came over uh, in England. It was a 66-day journey in 1620 where they traveled from England to the United States. They intended to dock in Virginia. Uh, due to storms and bad weather, they wound up uh, landing in Plymouth Rock on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And these were a very courageous group of people, of men, women, and children. Uh, they had a cause. They had a mission. Uh, they wanted basically, you know, amongst other things, they wanted to start a new government and they wanted to have freedom of religion. They wanted to not be under the umbrella of the Church of England. So in looking at this, as they established this country, as I said, they came over uh, from England to Cape Cod. And when they landed, they, they put in place a structure of government, which can be, be reflected upon in what's called the Mayflower Compact, which is a very small um, contract, really, that, that, that they drew up. You can find out more about the, these people and this information 
and an all-time American classic. Uh, it's called Of Plymouth Plantation by William Bradford, where it will give you the, uh, the birth of what's called the separatist movement. But in this compact, interestingly enough, the colonists remained loyal to King James despite the need for self-governance. Uh, they created laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices for the good of the colony, and they intended to abide by those laws. They agreed to create a, a one society and work together to further it, and they would live in accordance with the Christian faith. So when you look at the compact, the, the, the writing itself, the first thing that jumps out is, in the name of God, amen. That's how they begin. Second paragraph, having undertaken for the glory of God and for the advancements of the Christian faith and the honor of king and country and so forth. And then they go on to say, in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves into a civil, civil body politic for our better ordering and for the preservation and furtherance of the ends thereof uh, aforesaid and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute and frame such just and equal laws ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time, as shall they most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. So right away, you see the structure of government's been formed. They, they dedicated themselves to the work of the gospel. They dedicated themselves to, to base this land on the advancement of the gospel, and they were going to put this government together uh, that, that would honor God. So I wanted to just fast forward a little bit into what's known as America's Great Awakening. This was a period roughly 120 years later, from 1740 to 1760, where the power and the Spirit of God swept mightily through the colonies. During this time, historical accounts and biographies affirm that the Spirit of God swept mightily through the colonies. Whole towns began to dedicate themselves to God. Benjamin Franklin wrote of this period by stating, It seemed as though all the world was growing religious. No one could walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families on every street. This proved to be the foundational education leading up to the American Revolution for many, including, as many people will, will be familiar with these names, John Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin— History has recorded that thousands of examples of the clergy, because remember, as the Spirit of God is sweeping through the colonies, it is the clergy, it is the churches that are opening. They're, they're preaching the gospel, and, and the clergy played a, a, a instrumental role, and we'll see this in a moment, in the cultivation of Christian ideas pertaining to these exact United States. So next, I want to concentrate on what's known as the Black Robe Regiment. And I was kind of surprised that many people were not familiar with this. And I was also surprised to learn that many pastors and ministers are not familiar with this. Well, this is a group of people during the Revolutionary War, in the beginning of it and in, in the midst of it, that they were preachers who were preaching about freedom. They were um, listening to the, uh, to the Holy Spirit. They were encouraging one another to fight for their liberties. And out of this arose uh, a movement which began with a Reverend Peter Muhlenberg in 1776. As he concluded his Sunday sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes, he declared, quote-unquote, in the language of the Holy Writ, there was a time for all things, a time to preach and a time to pray. But those times have passed away. There is a time to fight, and that time is now coming. Muhlenberg then removed his black robe, revealing a full military uniform. Marching to the rear of the church, he declared, 
who among you is with me? And on that day, 300 men rose in that church, went to the back of the room. This group of men went on to become the 8th Virginia Brigade fighting for the liberty of these United States. There are countless uh, scores of records that you can find out about the Black Robe Regiment, about the importance of the clergy, about the importance of Christian men and women sticking up and, and standing for their faith and not being ashamed of the gospel. Uh, the American Quarterly Register in 1833 writes, as a body of men, the clergy were preeminent in their attachment to liberty. The pulpits of the land rang with the notes of freedom. B.F. Morrison, uh, Morris, I'm sorry, an historian, in 1864 writes, the ministers of the revolution were, like their Puritan predecessors, the, the pilgrims, bold and fearless in the cause of their country. No class of men contributed more to carry forward the revolution and to achieve our independence than did these ministers. By their prayers, patriotic sermons, and services, they rendered the highest assistance to the civil government, the army, and the country. Uh, Alice Baldwin in 1918, another historian, wrote, The Constitutional Convention and the written Constitution were the children of the pulpit. Um, Charles Galloway, who was a Methodist bishop, he writes, Mighty men they were, of iron nerve and strong hand and unblanched cheek and heart of flame, and such were the sons of the mighty who responded to the divine call. So here you see the clergy, the ministers of the gospel, playing a vital role, get basically kind of rolling up their sleeves and getting in the dirt with everybody else who were laying their lives on the line for these United States. So as everybody knows, we, we, we won the war, and out of that came the Constitutional Convention. But it came at a great price with many, many vigorous, heated debates. It took them from May 14th to September 17th in 1787 to come up with our Constitution as we know it today. And interestingly enough, although we're the, one of the youngest nations on the earth, we have the longest form of government anywhere in the history of mankind outside of monarchs. So outside of whether you, you're a king or a queen and handed down through, through family heritage, we have the only form of government that sustained this long. That's very important. Why? And I believe because they, these were men and women who based their principles and based their examples on the Bible. And, and I'll be able to show you that in implicit detail in a moment. But out of this convention, we have a balance. We have the legislative branch. We have the executive branch. We have the judicial branch. Notice that not one can overrule the other without mutual consent. In, in uh, the legislative, we have the Congress, the Senate, the House of Representatives. I'm sorry, the ha Senate and the House of Representatives is the Congress. Uh, the executive, the president, the vice president, and his or her cabinet. The judicial branch has the Supreme Court. Very important because you have nine justices uh, where many decisions over the many, many years uh, are five to four, maybe six to three. So you've got balance. You, you, uh, you've, you've got to have that. And interestingly enough, and I'll probably talk about this in the next section, uh, there's a, a, a part two to this where that's what's being fought for right now. The, the Democrats want to pack the courts because we're on the cusp of, as, as I'm recording this, tomorrow begins the day for uh, Amy Comey Barrett's uh, um, um, interviews, if you will, by, by the Congress. And that promises to be a very heated, ugly exchange. If, if Kavanaugh and some of the others before them were any example, this is going to be brutal. Um, 
But anyway, they fought for this republic. This is not a democracy. People like to throw around the word democracy. It's not. There's an interesting quip that as they fought for this, and I must say real quickly, um, the, when they were nearing the end of this and they couldn't agree on, on, on getting the language right, ministers came in and they fasted, they prayed, they ministered to these men and women who were representatives from the, from the early colonies. And uh, many of these colonists, and this is in, in, in the history records, they attribute the prayers and the counsel of the ministers of the gospel to helping them to reach a decision and overcome some of the hurdles they had. Uh, the Democracy Versus a Republic. I just want to read you, read you two quotes by John Adams. A democracy is nothing more than mob rule, where 51% can take away the rights of another 49%, whereas a republic is a government of laws. He also wrote, a democracy never lasts long. It seems it, it soon wastes itself, exhausts, and murders itself because there was never a democracy that didn't commit suicide. So they, they, they knew that what they were fighting for is going to be hard. As a matter of fact, there's an interesting quip of a woman uh, responding to ben Benjamin Franklin when all is said and done. And she says, well, doctor, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? In which Benjamin Franklin retorts, a republic if you can keep it. So he knew the struggle and what this was going to be. He knew this was... Uh, this, 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 you're basically, they went into uncharted territories. They created what is often referred to as the Great American Experiment. And as though, although we have our flaws and we have some things in history that didn't work out or didn't, aren't things that we may be proud of, nonetheless, we came out on top. We overcame our obstacles. And we are, without question, one of the most giving, courageous countries to mankind and to other nations um, coming to their assistance in their time of need. So when they had this convention, they were able to break up the power, as I, as I talked about, in the branches of government. They also broke it down to federal and state governments. They addressed things such as slavery, trade, taxes, foreign affairs, representation, um, who was going to be elected president, what were the, uh, what were the, uh, the boundaries for that, um, and, and you had all of these different strong e egos and people, you know, had their way of thinking. So this was a battle. And as I said, this took from May 14th to September 17th, but it did come out on top. So uh, um, I wanted to say, well, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from presidents uh, kind of affirming um, the, the foundation of this country and our Christian principles. Andrew Jackson writes, the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. President Sam Adams, we have this day, meaning the 4th of July, restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. President Abraham Lincoln writes, the only assurance of our nation's safety is to lay our foundation in morality and religion. And finally, George Washington, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his protection and favor. Um, I, there's a very fascinating study that was done by a Dr. Donald Lutz. And if you're watching this on video, I'm referring to the blue section on the left of the screen. In 1983, uh, he did a 10-year study where he analyzed 15,000 political documents of the Founders' era. Uh, this was from 1760 to 1805, and he listed 3,154 cit citations that was analyzed and published in the American Science P Political Science Review. 
and by far the most popular source of these political ideas was the Bible. It accounted for one-third of all their citations. And get this, another 60% of all references can be attributed to authors which themselves derive ideas from the Bible. So he was able to conclude that it can be said with certainty that 94%, 94% of our constitutional principles, mandates, and concepts are based directly or indirectly on the Bible. He later did a study of 76 of the most representative pamphlets and essays written by our founders. In 76 essays, virtue is emphasized as vital over 300 times. So clearly, if you, if you go from, from the pilgrims on up, and I, and I would even challenge you to, I didn't get into it here, but if you look at the voyage of Christopher Columbus, he will, he will confirm in his writings, and it's there out there for you, he's, he cites the book of Isaiah, that he believes that he was led to this land uh, by the Spirit of God. He really didn't come to this conclusion until in the voyage and in landing here, but Look that up, but I'm laying out for you from the Pilgrim's Voyage here uh, on through to the Great uh, Awakening, to the Revolutionary War, to our Constitutional uh, Convention, to the basis of which we know and, and which we stand. So here you've got the government when they've got these Christian principles, but where did they get their ideas from if they looked in the Bible? So interestingly enough, I wanted to look at two scriptures in particular, um, one from the Old Testament and one from the New uh, the first one you hear a lot at Christmas time, but let me read the whole thing. This is Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. I'm re- referencing the NIV here in both accounts. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord, and remember that line. I'm going to jump now to Matthew 16, 18 through 19. This is Jesus speaking. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, meeting hell, will not overcome it. And this is, this is vital right here. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he's given us, disciples of, of Jesus Christ, Christians today, authority, kingdom authority, kingdom government authority, not United States government, uh, uh, per se, or other foreign governments. And um, obviously, if you're listening from another country, I'm, I'm referencing a lot to America here. But, you know, this would be true in, in, in other places. But the, 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 the church of Jesus Christ, meaning the various denominations, so I'm talking Assembly of God, Pentecostal, Baptist, Catholic, uh, Episcopalian, Charismatics, whatever you want to say, um, so this, this is what I'm referencing. That's the government, and I'm going to show you how in a second. So I wanted to look at, if you keep these two uh, scriptures in mind, what the Hebrew translation is, uh, particularly in, in, the Old, in the Old Testament and the Isaiah scriptures here. The word government, which, is, uh, which was referenced here, is the word misra. It means empire or dynasty, and this is the Strong's Concordance that I'm referencing. Again, if you're on video, I give you the, the numbers, H9451, if you wanted to look it up. And forgive me, I'm sure I'm, I'm killing my Hebrew here, but uh, I'll try to get my in. Throne is the Hebrew word kisa, 
It means seat of power, seat of authority, canopy under which rule extends, the jurisdiction of a position of honor and the position from which a king reigns. Again, Strong's Concordance. Jesus sits upon the throne of his kingdom to order it. He establishes judgment and justice. That's a government. He wants his church aligning with him to accomplish this rule. And remember I said, remember the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, the close of that Isaiah scripture. The Hebrew translation for that is the the zeal of the Lord means angel armies will perform this. So basically the Lord's given us authority, as we know from Matthew, and in order to accomplish this, he will enroll or loose, if you will, angel armies to assist us to accomplish everything that we've set out to do that's in accordance with the gospel, that's in accordance with the word of God. In other words, Jesus will release his armies the angel armies, to assist the church. And if you're a Christian, uh, and this should come as no surprise to you, and who obeys his commands in binding or loosening these things on earth. Again, you have kingdom authority. Whether you, you want to acknowledge it or not, that's up to you. But the, but the Lord has given you that. So I wanted to uh, move over to uh, the Greek word ekklesia, which is church. And again, if you're watching on video, this is in the blue section. But the Greek word, it's a Greek word, ekklesia, and it's used 113 times in the New Testament. That's important because the New Testament was translated to Greek. Most of it is written in Greek. This is a political word. It's not a religious term. Again, Strong's Concordance will back this up. But notice Jesus does not use a religious word. He doesn't use a temple or a synagogue, because remember, Jesus walking the earth was Jewish, so he was preaching and ministering in the temples and in the synagogues. By using the word ecclesia, he is using a word that describes the act of governing. 113 times it's referenced. And ecclesia in the day of Jesus and and the days of the early church was a group of competent citizens of a certain region, and they would meet at regular intervals to govern. Uh, This was done by a verbal yes or no, a yay or a nay. Um, They would look over decisions on suggested laws or any new laws that would come about, appointments to official positions, Um, internal and external policies, which included contracts, treaties, financial issues, war and peace matters, rule on case of treason. Uh, They would, whether you're summoning an army to assemble for war, remember there's war at this time, there's war, there's always war, there's battles, rule on societal and cultural matters uh, for the geographical uh, region or location, and they would choose who would sit on the Arabacus or Abacus, which is the high court of Athens, and I probably killed that in the Greek as well. So pardon or excuse my my New York or New Jersey upbringing. Uh, But this was basically uh, equivalent to what we would know as the Supreme Court today. Colin Brown, this is all referenced in Colin Brown's International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. So we can conclude, as as Colin does, that Jesus' church, the ecclesia, the government of the church, consisted of his heirs who are to rule and to reign with Jesus in their region. So, now that we, we've had, we have this established scripturally, uh, we, from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I want to look at what was the political uh, element in the days of Jesus. And, you know, this may take people by surprise, uh, but there was a ruling family, very, very similar to what we see today in, in Jesus' time. 
Um, this is you can reference this. You can look this up. It's a pretty fascinating study. Study. It's called the Herodian Dynasty, or another term for it being used is called the political spirit. There's a fascinating book that was written by a minister out of Toronto, uh, Meisel Fallick, and he. It's the name of his book is the political spirit. Um, he is, interestingly enough, a former Muslim uh, who, who encountered the Lord, and he was ministering. He was trying to convince Christians to come to the Muslim faith, and basically he, he met the Lord and the evidence in front of him, and he is now a powerful minister for the gospel, reaching Muslims and other religions uh, or people of other religious backgrounds. But there's, So this was a five-generation uh, uh, group of people, and, and many people who are familiar with the Gospels or the Book of Acts, you notice throughout there that there's Herod. Herod's always mentioned, and Herod's mentioned at different times. And I, I personally found this a little bit uh, confusing. If you're watching this on video, if you want to look this up, I, I've cited all the different generations of Herod's um, and, and the, where they appear in different scriptures. For instance, um, we're talking about predominantly, you're going to hear a lot about Herod the Great, which most people are familiar with, but then they're his brothers, uh, Herod Philip, uh, Herod Antipas, uh, Herod Aristobulus, uh, then the grandsons, Herod Agrippa, and then another great-grandson, Agrippa II. Um, Herod Agrippa was mentioned uh, throughout the book of Acts, except for two specific scriptures. Um, his son, Herod Agrippa II, mentioned in uh, um, Acts 25 and 26. Herod Philip, Luke 3, 1, Matthew 14, 3. Uh, Herod the Great, Luke 1, Matthew 2. So um, if, you, if you take the, um, the, basically the father of Herod the Great and you break that through to his great-grandchildren, then you can, you can see this. But in looking this up, um, as a matter of fact, let me just let me quote Jesus on this. In Mark 8:15, Jesus repeatedly or repeatedly, so he had to say this more than once, he watched, said, "Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod." So he's warning you right there. What's leaven? Leaven is that wonderful carbohydrate that makes us fat in bread. So really what he's saying is the fatness, the expansion, the bloating of, of, of the Herods, of the Herodian dynasty, of the different King Herods, the sins of Herod, really. So, and this was, this was spirits that they were operating on. And I'm going to show you exactly how. This was a spiritual battle. The, these were demonic spirits that were coming upon him. Uh, as we know, they wanted, to kill, they wanted to kill Jesus, and he did a full on-court press for that. So I'll, t- I'll mention that in a second. But the, the leaven of Herod is a political spirit, a strong man. And they operate by trying to start a false government. So a false government is one that opposes a kingdom government. Um, their agenda is to establish this government to disavow all kingdom values and all kingdom principles. It makes relationships with religious leaders pretending they have godly agendas in mind. Oh my, doesn't that sound familiar? Think about all the politicians trying to get favor with the different religious leaders and, you know, kind of sucking up to them, like almost like holding a lollipop with a kid. Um, and sadly, many of these people fall in line and, and, you know, because they want the power. So much of this is driven by, by a hunger for power and money and fame, um, which is not what the kingdom of God is all about. It's not what the Lord is about. So what we find in this, these political spirits, is they partner with religious and Jezebel spirits. So I'm going to cite some um, particular examples in Scripture to to bear this out with you. Um, 
So I want to start off with Matthew 2. This is something that most people are familiar with, whether you're a Christian or not. You, you hear this a lot at the time of Christmas. Um, so bear with me. It's, it's, this is Matthew 2. Um, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Remember, this is the Star of Bethlehem. Everybody's familiar with the Star of Bethlehem story. So this is an interesting part here. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where, where is this Messiah to be born? And he, they replied, in Bethlehem, in Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. And he cites the Old Testament scripture. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, speaking of Jesus, or Yeshua, as, he, as he's known there. So he's citing the Old Testament, giving him examples. So Herod calls the Magi secretly, and he finds out what is the exact time that the star appeared. So he sends them to Bethlehem. And he says, go search carefully for this child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. So here you see this. He's, he's aligning himself up with the Magi, the religious spirit. And he's, oh, I want, to be, I want to worship this child. I want to honor this child. When we all know that he wanted to kill him, that he wanted to murder him. He was so obsessed. And if this is a man of, of sane uh, uh, value or, or, or operating as, as somebody normal with all this power and clout that he has, he's obsessed with destroying and killing this child. And I will tell you, that's a demonic spirit that's come on him. So he's trying to partner with the religious of that day and making him seem like he's so pious. So the Magi, as we know, they go and they, they honor the, uh, Jesus, but they're warned in a dream uh, by the angel to go back because they said Herod, he said Herod wants to kill him. The uh, same uh, angel appears to Joseph, warning them, go, go to Egypt because Herod wants to kill you. So Herod gets wind of this and finds all this out. And at the conclusion of Matthew 2, 1 through 16, um, and I have this highlighted here in green, at the bottom, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he becomes furious. He gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So he's so nuts at this time that he wants to kill everybody, every boy who's two years old and under in the geographical region of that location. And that's important too. There's geographical elements that are coming up and, and we'll see why in a second. So I wanted to point out a couple of other interesting scriptures here. Luke thirteen thirty two, and it says, at that same time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, remember the Pharisees were the religious rulers of this day, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. To which Jesus replies, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. And I kind of relate to this as being raised in New Jersey and living in New York. I understand, I, to me, that's Jesus with an East Coast attitude. Go tell that fox, I'm going to do what the Father called me to do. I'm about the Father's business, and I'm not going to let this government, this Herod, this false government, deter me from what I've been called to do. 
um, Mark 3, 6, cites here the religious and the political spirit, because then the, it says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians. Notice, we're not one Herod. These are multiple Herods, multiple generations, and how they might kill Jesus. Um, here in the next uh, scripture, I'm going to cite Matthew 14, 6 through 10. This is where the Jezebel spirit operates with the political spirit. And most people are familiar with this. This concerns the beheading of John the Baptist. And, and, and scripture cites, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Herodias was having an affair uh, uh, with with Herod the Great's son, uh, I'm sorry, with the brother. So she was married to one brother and having an affair with another brother. So you see this this Jezebel spirit operating, and then he has her. So she conspires with her mother, prompted by her mother. It says, "Give me here the platter. Uh, give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist." And then all of a sudden, oh, the king was so distressed because of his, his oaths and his dinner guests. So he knows he's doing this. But, you know, oh, I made an oath and I did this in front of everybody, so I have to honor it. So sure enough, they wind up beheading John the Baptist. And last I'm going to cite here is really the end of the Herodian dynasty. Uh, this is in Acts 12, 18 through 24. This is Herod Agrippa II, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Um, then Herod went out from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so this would be up near Lebanon. Then they now joined and sought an audience with him. After securing the, the support of Blaustus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So right here, you know, this is the people appeasing to the king because they need food. So he's got that power position. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on the throne and delivered a public address to the people. And what happens? The people shout, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And, and so the, the accolades, and, you know, of course, he doesn't give God the glory immediately because Herod did not give praise to a God. An angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So right there, that's the end of the Herodian dynasty. That's the last generation, the end of that particular element of the political spirit. So here, here you see the political spirits, and I guess what I'm getting at is multiple spirits operating collectively. So, you know, much like you have in warfare, you have different battalions working with one another to accomplish a mission or a goal. You may have an army joining with the Air Force or the Navy and so forth, or different battalions and uh, 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 command units. You, you have that within the spiritual realm as, as, as well. And how do we know that? I'm going to show you in a second because um, who are they reporting to? Well, let's look at Satan because Satan is, is the ruler of this world. He is the one that was cast out of heaven. So this is Jesus speaking in John 8, 44. And this is what Jesus says of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Uh, so, you know, he, he's setting the course here. Don't believe anything he says. He, he, he's just, everything that he's about is not truthful. Then there's another scripture I want to point out in Luke 10 through 7, 17 through 20. 
And this is the 70 who are returning. These are disciples in, uh, of, of Jesus. And they're, they're going around the countryside. They're laying, on hand, they're laying of hands. They're casting out demons. They're healing the sick in the name of Jesus. And they come to him and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And when Jesus responds, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on the serpents and the scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So again, Jesus is, is giving you warning, but how do you exercise this kingdom authority? Because you're known in heaven, because you have a relationship, you've accepted Jesus as your Lord, the Father knows you, and this is how you go about. And this is the the battle that we have to contend with. This is the battle that Jesus contended with, with the, with the different spirits that were operating under Herod and his armies and, 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 and their henchmen, if you will. Um, next, I want to go to uh, a gentleman named Charles Baudelaire, uh, Paris newspaper Le Figaro. Pardon my French, pun intended. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was bad. Um, he wrote something that I think is, is absolutely relevant today. He wrote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Uh, there's many people who just scoff at the idea of a devil. They don't believe it. It's, it's often an obscure, vague belief in the back of their minds. Ah, come on, come on. Yeah, maybe there's a devil, but he's not going to harm me. Um, and I believe personally that nothing could delight the devil more than uh, operating in complete uh, ambiguity. You know, if you think if you're fighting a battle and, and you, you can't see the enemy, then the enemy's got a distinct advantage. Unless you have, let's say, if it's at night and you have maybe night vision goggles. But if the enemy is going about and he's going about doing destruction and people aren't giving him credit or not paying him in any never mind, he can kind of go wherever he wants to and do whatever he wants to do. And I would say that is true uh, largely, I would say very much so today in today's world. And sadly, there's a, a number of Christians who are operating like this as well. So next, I wanted to look at the, I talked about the importance of geographical regions and strategies. Now, consider this, Satan is not omnipotent nor omniscient. This is only attributes of God. He can only wield his power by delegating to different spirits of authority. In other words, there's, there's the different realms of authority, much like we talked about, whether it's a general to uh, a colonel, to a captain, to a lieutenant, to a sergeant, a corporal, and so forth. There's different divisions, different areas of, uh, of authority. And I think the, the greatest example for me anyway is in Daniel 10, 12 through 14, Daniel's praying and he's interceding for the people, uh, for the Hebrew nation and, and for what he believes, if he's looking at in, in the book of Jeremiah for their return to, to Jerusalem. And the angel uh, Gabriel appears to Daniel and he says, do not be afraid, Daniel. For the first, from the first day that you purpose to understand, to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. However, the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. So, right, he's telling you, I'm trying to get to you, but I've got a battle to get to you. I've got a battle to assist you. There's a princes or print, and we'll see princes assigned to this kingdom, to this geographical region of Persia which for the most part is what we know today as modern-day Iran, but this is in the spiritual realm. Then he goes on to say, Then Michael, one of the chief priests, the archangel Michael, came to help me, for I had been left there with kings of Persia. Kings, plural. 
again, so it's, you know, think of it as uh, a battalion who needs to call in reinforcements, maybe um, a land brigade or an army or Marines needing the help of the Air Force for air cover, things like that. Think of it from, from what we know as the uh, 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 modern-day battle elements. Uh, but again, he now he's saying hey, he had been left there with kings of Persia. So he's pointing out, you know, there, there there's multi, there's multiplication going on here, um, and we know this from throughout Scripture, where there's there's literally billions of angels, and we know that a third of those angels were thrown out of of, of heaven with Lucifer. So you're talking about mass armies all around the world, and he goes on to say in in uh, twenty through twenty one in the same chapter. Do you know why I have come to you? He says I must return one at once to fight against the prince of Persia. When I have gone forth, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So again, another geographic location. Yet no one has the courage to support me against these except Michael, your prince, the archangel. I wanted to give you a couple of other. Examples here in the Old Testament, the concept of, of demonic spirits operating as false gods uh, or different geographical locations, uh, such as the gods of the high places. Um, we have examples of the gods of the hills versus the gods of the plains, the idea that gods could be established in new, in new locations, Second Kings, and, and, and the linking to uh, false gods, specifically to demons. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 32.17. Um, last, my, my other reference here is in Revelation. This is Jesus, and most Christians are, are familiar with this, where he's talking, he writes a letter to, through the Apostle John to the various churches in Pergamum, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, etc. Um, and in this, to every one of them, he starts it off with, to the church, to the angel of the church in uh, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Laodicea, Ephesus, Smyrna, to each one of those, he's addressing it with an angel. And interestingly enough, if you look up history in Pergamum, that was a stronghold of Satan. They even had a temple dedicated to Satan in that area. So these are different geographical regions, different demonic forces working for different influences in that land or in those cultures. Cultures, I'm sorry. So I just wanted to wrap it up here. I wanted to thank you. We're going to continue this in another segment uh, where we're going to address what's what I would refer to as what is the real meaning and definition to uh, uh, the separation of church and state and how did we come about that and where are we at today? So I'm going to take, I wanted to lay a foundation here of our country's history. Our, our, our country was founded upon Christian principles and how uh, Jesus in his time, both the Old Testament and New Testament, that government was a, a um, embraced God-ordained structure or a model to follow, and that our founders followed that model, which I believe attributes to much success of which we obtained today. But we're going to go on to the next section, and we're going to dive deep into and bring this right up to modern day uh, today, where we sit less than a month away from the next presidential election. So I, I hope you'll join us there. Um, I want to thank you for listening. Again, if you're on social media, if you could just hit the, the like or subscribe button. If you have questions or comments, you can email the Outlook at gmail.com. Uh, and please sign up on our email list. We'd love to see you. Again, thank you for joining us. God bless you. And remember, as always, just my opinion.